welcome to Beyond the Seminar, where we sit down and have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting UC Davis Biomedical Engineering Department seminar series. I'm Randy Carney, an assistant professor in biomedical engineering here at UC Davis, and I'm here today with Dr. Kiyu Shen, an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Southern California. So welcome to the program. Thank you. So your lab studies the microenvironment around cancer cells and stem cells, amongst other things. And part of your goal is to design new therapeutics based on these factors that are feeding those cells. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in your own words, what exactly is the cell microenvironment and, and why do you think it's so important to study? So cell microenvironment basically describes like the environment that basically our cells are living in. Uh, so they experience basically um, the interactions with each other and they have to collaborate with each other to perform certain functions. Um, so the environment is is some sort of a, we, we when we talk about environment a lot of times that you think about the environment being like uh, say that you walk on campus the trees whatever that's your environment you're walking in them so it seems that there's a passive part of the environment there's an active part that's you walking in there but in the body I would say it's much more dynamic than that because all the cells are in a way that's kind of equal to each other, right? Each individual cell is a functional live being. And then uh, this for another cell that's kind of like working in that environment, they usually have to communicate with each other. Uh, they have like subtle factor or physical interaction with each other. That kind of microenvironment, it's, I would say it's a much, much more interactive sense of the environment. So in disease, uh, especially in cancer, how is the microenvironment altered? So uh, in cancer, for example, uh, I, I kind of I started working this area in my postdoc. I kind of I would say I was struck. Uh, struck um, it was very striking to me that basically the cancer cells they start off in some sort of a normal kind of usual microenvironment that normal cells are experiencing, and then over time. Uh, they can produce something themselves by either producing like the extracellular matrix or like the uh, solid factor signal to those normal environment, actually coerce them or convert that environment into something that, that will really benefit them. At the same time, environment also applies in a, a, a pressure on themselves, on these cancer cells, and these cancer cells will adapt to that environment so this is also kind of, again, that's the bi-directional interaction. So people looking at cells like from tumor, from different regions of tumor, and from different sites of tumor, like metastatic tumor versus the primary tumor, they all show very drastic changes, kind of like at the later stage of cancer. So some of the metastatic cancer, kind of like basically they, when they branch off, like some of the cancer cell remain in the primary tumor, but they also, uh, branch off in different kinds of genotypes. So that suggests that the environment is really kind of either they, they're adapting to local environment or they are creating their own new environment and then their genotype is suitable for that environment. So overall, it's a very complicated problem, but at the same time, kind of like fascinating like how that diversity actually emerged um, in the tumors. Yeah, totally. And I think most people are thinking of tumor therapies as getting a drug into the tumor cell and killing it somehow mm -hmm. or transforming it into a healthy cell, for example. But you, you, your lab is focused on sort of um, 
using the microenvironment as a target sort of to mm -hmm. intervene with that. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the advantages of that compared to these other conventional approaches? So for the environment part, I would say um, when we talk about a disease like for a cancer, they could take many different forms. So they can mutate, they have genetic instability, and then uh, they can adapt to a new environment. Um, but on the other hand, the environment itself usually are made up of genetically normal cells. So at least on the genetic side, uh, the environment is more stable in a way than the cancer cell themselves. So if you somehow have a way to kind of like intercept in that environment, they have a, at least like a normal set of pathway that you can deal with. Um, so it gives you a certain level of uh, controllability over the tumor as compared to your, if you're directly targeting the cancer cells. Cancer cell, they can escape, for example, by acquiring new mutation. Um, but environment, like in the sense that they always carry those normal genetic information. So they still function in a way, in a predictable way. Very cool. Another thing that struck me about your research is historically what we're learning about cells is by growing them in two dimensions on a plate, for example, mm -hmm. throwing drugs and things on top of them. But your lab, as well as many others, are starting to uh, get much more complex models that are growing all these in 3D. So mm -hmm. now you're better recapitulating the actual environment like you would in a tumor. Mm -hmm. So what are the challenges of, of growing cells in, in 3D? So uh, for the 3D culture, I would say it's um, there a level of autonomy that you cannot really fully control um, kind of in the culture. And for 2D, sometimes it's the same thing, but 2D, I feel like they, at least they're constrained in, on a two-dimensional surface, right? Uh, for the 3D, I mean, they are interacting with the matrix and then to control, for example, localization of the matrix, like where you present certain features or factors in the 3D environment will be much, much more difficult than a 2D kind of environment. It, another very hot area nowadays is the organoid culture, for example, which is more is more on the uh, totally bottom-up approach. So you throw cells uh, into a gel and then let them organize into their own structures. And then most of the time you will involve some sort of uh, stem cell culture, right? And then they would develop into an organ-like kind of structure. But a lot of times you will also see huge heterogeneity in them. Uh, large, small, and then there's a budding structure, and another one doesn't have it, and then this one has three or four, and another one have like ten budding, and then it's really hard to kind of, like, uh, I, I would say, see through some of the noises uh, in the biological system. But uh, in terms of our our culture, like there's a, a, mo a little more of engineering component uh, in terms of uh, top down how you design the whole system. And then they will perform in certain ways that are dictated by the physics, dictated by the biology. You know, another thing your lab studies, digging in a little bit deeper into the therapies, is CAR T-cell therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, so the CAR-T stands for chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. Yeah. Um, can you break down this technology and share maybe some of the, the early examples of success in the clinic? Uh, so this is a kind of very exciting area right now. The success story started about a decade ago. Um, actually, the CAR-T itself, the story goes way back. I think in the 1980s, uh, people already created first-generation CAR. 
it's basically a, a result of synthetic biology. Um, people know like certain part of the molecule carries certain functions in the cell signaling. Um, but from the beginning of the car, people are trying to put different pieces of those domains together to form a novel molecule that's he totally man-made. And you can actually put them into the cell to perform function. It, it's amazing that they actually work in that way. It's, it's just simply connecting different pieces linearly together into one molecule. And then some pieces sitting outside a cell, some pieces inside a cell. And they just like uh, like electric circuit, you kind of engage the external extra cellular part, and it somehow triggers the signal inside the cell. That's kind of like, I, I don't know like how how that actually. If, I, I think there's a sense of luck part, but at the same time probably a sense of deterministic kind of this is actually how the cell work, in right from the beginning. But that 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 technology actually has been very quiet for like developing the kind of backdrop for a long time. So when I was a PhD student in Columbia, actually I had an opportunity working with a group actually at UPenn. They they were the group actually developing these CAR-T for kind of therapeutic uh, purposes. Uh, back then there was not much of um, excitement in the in the field. It was just kind of a totally experimental tool. Uh, so the Carl Jones group uh, who really kind of make this CAR-T kind of technology alive so uh but then like i, I st start to hear about it and then i work a little bit back then i was working on the t-cell biomanufacturing problem how we can kind of make a lot of t-cells and let them expand without losing kind of like a memory phenotype so that they can persist longer in the body um so uh, i i learned this technology from their people like they are developing in a separate pipeline for the car -T. Therapy. And then around that time, when I graduated from my uh, PhD program, like 2011, 2012, like I started my postdoc, and then this CAR-T suddenly become really, really successful because they utilized this on the actual patient and actually successfully cure her, as I showed in the kind of in this presentation. My wife had basically, she was uh, kind of like in some sort of a stage where they try all kinds of therapy for her, like traditional way of chemotherapy and other types of therapy and nothing, nothing worked. So I think as the kind of last hope, like just trying the CAR-T and then that somehow kind of rescued her from kind of like a very, very dangerous situation. And then she's totally fine now. I mean, the New York Times, like that picture, uh, that, that picture captures the happy moment <laughs> like very well. And she was uh, really just rescued from the disease situation. And then she's not totally normal. She's kind of like an ab ambassador for the whole immunotherapy kind of field, um, kind of like having a foundation attracting kind of like, uh, research funding for the immunotherapy and the clinical trial, those kind of things. Great. So, yeah, since Emily and, and that success story, um, there's been other examples of CAR T mm -hmm. uh, therapies that I've worked, but most of them are for are for leukemias, like blood cancers. Yeah, that's right. As you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, and and you said today that you know most of our cancers, more than ninety percent, are not blood cancers; they're mm -hmm. solid tumors within our our body. Mm -hmm. So, um, how does this relate with your work to kind of microenvironment of these solid tumors, and and mm -hmm. what sort of work are you doing in that area? Yeah, that's a perfect example of uh, how important the microenvironment really is in the diseases. So, I mean, the 
the success story of the CAR-T doesn't really translate into the solid tumors. I mean, people have theorized many different things. Uh, people are actually still working very hard in that area, like trying different kinds of new targets for the solid tumors. Um, but there's this common, common pattern there. So you see that the success of these targeting, they always target things very well, like HER2 or meso, uh, different kinds of uh, tumor antigens. But what, what happens is that when you put these CAR-T in the body, they will attack some normal organs, like presenting those um, kind of antigens, but they just don't kill the tumors. I mean, that, that's the thing that gives you kind of like a hint, right? It's really targeting, targeting what it's supposed to target, but it just cannot target the same target in the tumor microenvironment. Uh, so the tumor microenvironment is really the barrier there. Hmm. Uh, a lot of a lot of the experimental model they directly inject the immune cells into tumor. I mean, can you do that in the metastatic cancer patient? Like, can you find all the metastatic tumors and have a needle to inject that can that, that immune cell? That's no that's a, the no way, right? <laughs> so you really need to get those immune cells by themselves, like into these tumors. Uh, so that's the goal that we have right now. What is the what are the factors that's preventing them to get into solid tumor? It's like sneaking into mm -hmm. infiltrating a secret military base yeah, or something. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah, your research is amazing. I mean, in the stuff you're doing, or just in immunotherapy or synthetic biology, is there something on the horizon that's that you've heard about or that you're really excited about that's going to be transformative in, in the next, you know, several decades? So, um, for the, I, I think, I think it's, a uh, definitely for the immunotherapy, for the cell therapy, it's a very, very promising kind of area. I would say I, I, I've been excited since my PhD, like I first worked on T cell when nobody in the biomedical engineering or never, not many people actually working on the, T cells or immune cells back then. I was super excited about this area kind of already. Um, and then uh, I think it's probably going to be the case for the next few decades, like how to use patients' own cells to kill the disease, uh, in this case, the cancer. People are also using these cells for other diseases, autoimmune disease or um, kind of, uh, yeah, just, just kind of in general, uh, use cells to target cells. Uh, that's kind of like a theme that's going to be with us for a long time. And then there will be a lot of uh, successful stories coming out from those pipelines. Um, that's that's kind of like my general feeling. Exciting. Mm -hmm. So where did you grow up? Where are you from? Um, so I, I grew up in China. Um, so China, I, 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 I kind of grew up in a time that undergoes huge... I would say change in the society. Um, so uh, back then, like before I was born, that was before m my birth. Uh, there was a cultural revolution in China. There was everything very political movement like here and there. Uh, but when I around the time I was born, like there was a kind of political reformation, and then the whole country shifts to economy, economic development, and then scientific kind of like, um, uh, ventures and then people start to value uh, like science and engineering mm. and economy a lot more uh, than the political kind of like activism. 
Um, so uh, it was fortunate in the time I was born in that time, and then my parents actually gave my name. Like my name is Korea. It's like a leap of science. That's kind of really? like a, a theme, kind of wow. like in the society. Everybody wants to do science and engineering. Uh, and then I'm really excited about that. And then I kind of grew up in a family. I, I would say, I mean, before that time, like everybody have limited resources, like to kind of go to get education. So my parents, they only studied to kind of um, elementary school. Actually, they only graduated like fifth or sixth grade and then uh, they never had any further education but i know they are very smart people and if they are given actually the opportunity and resources they probably will go to college or something in the kind of current society uh, but then back then a lot of people are kind of in that same situation like they couldn't receive education uh, during their childhood and then uh, so they put hope in, in our generation and uh, I was kind of like the first person in the family and actually get to the college and then uh, go to graduate school and then <laughs> get a PhD and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, but I, I, I always like during my childhood, like I have seen kind of many, read many books related to actually interesting. Like I, back then I was more interested in space, mm. kind of like look, reading books like the kind of like about the uh, man-made kind of like a spacecraft and then mm -hmm. I, I'm interested in universe and then um, astronomy uh, those type of things um, but in general I would say like I'm very interested in science I, 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 I'm, I, I feel like I'm naturally suited for that kind of area I, 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 I always have very had a very easy time to study those subjects on the contrary a lot of some other uh, subjects that I had to do kind of like politics. I usually get very low. A more painful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a painful process. I, so I know like what's good, what's not good for me. <laughs> yeah, that's very valuable. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm also interested in space. And mm -hmm. I, I one of my pandemic hobbies was to take up astrophotography. In, in my <laughs> yeah, backyard. I see that picture. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the black it's really hole. fun. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you must have felt some, uh, or did you feel pressure from your, I mean, they named you like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, your namesake is science. Uh -huh. I mean, from before they, you remember, were you, you knew you were going to go into science? They didn't really push me. Uh, it's kind of like my name is one thing. They had hope, um, but they never really just, just pushed me to do what. So when did it's, you first get into get interested in yourself in science? So I think it's more like uh, so I have a sister, older sister that's two years, uh, she, she's two years older than me. So um, when she grew up, uh, she actually is three grades up like higher than me because her elementary school is like just five years. I I I, I was in a time that they changed it to six years, so I fell behind. <laughs> so when when she grew up, she had a bunch of textbooks like from school there's some physics book so i'm really interested in looking at her book and then in the physics book they have a lot of ex little experiments they listed that they mm. can do at home so i i kind of like, uh, i'm interested in kind of making circuits and then making there was a one i think there was a i, I forgot I, I don't know what it's kind of like you measure the humidity of the air by kind of like making a um, using a, a piece of hair. Mm. You first, <laughs> of course, use soap to remove all the fat content, and then you kind of connect to the needle, and then you, you can point to different kind of positions wow. as an indicator of the humidity. 
And uh, um, yeah, I tried those little kind of like small experiments. That was really exciting to it. me. Yeah. And I also have a toolbox myself. Like I, I, there's a carpenter like right across my home. So he has a lot of little tiny wood pieces. So I asked him like, I, can I have those uh, little kind of um, little pieces for myself? And then he always gave it to me and I have a collection of them. I use them as a base material to create my kind of like own collection of um, kind of scientific experiments. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. cool. And so uh, did you, um, you went to uh, undergrad university in China? Yeah. Um, and you were, which, which sort of field did you go into for study at first? So at first I was in the mechanical engineering, kind of like a more of a, my department is like a more in the machine design of manufacturing. So in China, the system back then was a little bit different from the U.S., it's, which is more like copying the Soviet Union. Uh, so the majors are designed in a very, very specific way. So very, very specialized. So the departments you probably would never see in the US system, like machine design automation. Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the difference between that and a, a precision instrument? So uh, my, my department was uh, in the department of precision instrument and a mechanology. Uh, I don't know that if that's a word in English, <laughs> but then like uh, I was in a major that's dedicated for machine design automation. And then um, I, I was interested in general, like those mechanical things. I mm -hmm. still use them nowadays, like machining, cool. uh, micro milling, those type of thing. Um, and, um, but, but then like I realized, um, I mean, I, we studied a uh, kind of like bunch of classes about machine design. So I was amazed about the, re the, the designs that people have made uh, very, very intricate machineries. Like you can use mechanical structures, connections to achieve so many different functions. Uh, you can use like the cam wheels that like, with different shapes and then that can design over time, like how it rotates and then um, make certain movement, like uh, connecting an arm and then using a lever or whatever and a wheel. Uh, to achieve those functions. Nowadays, actually, we are dumbing down again because yeah. you have those kind of electromotors and then uh, computer languages to control those motors. Mm. And then you can achieve the same function with the much, much simpler structures. Uh, but back then, I was seeing this structure. This probably a design over 100 years ago. And then during the boom time of the mechanical engineering, right, industrial revolution, so I, I thought like maybe I'm a hundred years late for this major. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like uh, there's so many things that smart people have uh, kind of designed to so many things that's kind of like, I feel like um, I may be just improving an existing system or even dumbing it down by mm -hmm. electromotive or other things. So I feel like I, I want to get into some area that's more unknown, mm. uh, kind of more exploration. So that's where I think after undergrad, I went to a department, uh, kind of it's a biotechnology department. So uh, my w first work was in kind of analyzing uh, DNA, um, kind of more of a nucleic acid, like for the disease detection, nothing live cell. Uh, and then afterwards, I want to kind of really get into cells um, so this is where I started working with cells in my PhD at Columbia. What, what do you think that people would be surprised to know that you do outside of science? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I, I may have a, some sort of a 
boring life in a in a way <laughs> i kind of got more ex attracted to research so i think yeah i, I like i like reading actually history mm. a lot uh I, i'm also interested in kind of like, uh, reading books not related to my own research mm -hmm. you know i have a, a kind of I, I usually get stuck in traffic like between my home and then uh my school and then it's a 10 mile drive a 40 minutes drive oh my gosh so yeah. i listen to those like podcasts i listen to like uh, olive Sachs kind of books mm -hmm. on like neuro neurology those type of uh, brains uh those type of thing i think it's very interesting to me it's totally outside my field but i feel excited about some of the things he was talking about and then um history i, I i'm always interested in history like chinese history and then also Western history, like uh, Roman Empire and uh, those kind of things. I also play video games, of course, like <laughs> Asia Empire. That's kind of like one of the things cool. I'm most into, I think, when I was a student uh, in the undergrad. And that, that, that theme is has been with me for a long time. Great. Um, yeah, usually I finish by asking if there's, you know, something that you uh, recently saw or read mm -hmm. that that was particularly great. I think mm -hmm. that's a that's a lot of good examples. But any, <laughs> anything else come to mind? Um, yeah, not too much. I think nowadays, I think I'm kind of uh, outside my research time. It's more like with kids. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I do go out for archery with my kids. Oh, yeah, fun. That's, a, that's, a, that's a lot of fun. I think it helps my kids to kind of train on their focus, but mm. also like, I enjoy that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Also fits my history kind of interest yeah. because archery is the... Uh, probably the most ancient kind of weaponry in the in the human history. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Yeah, thanks very much for for sharing your your time with us and and being generous. Um, My pleasure. So, where can people find you if they want to connect further? Uh, they can probably get in touch with me through email. My, my contact information is all public online. So, kind great. of looking at my name on Google, you will see me. Uh, so, I have a website. Uh, kind of like, um, yeah, on the USC website. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, it'll be great to talk to you again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. And I look forward to catch up with you.